0: good news is if we change how we're living it will have a major impact on how we're eating and if we don't change how we're living no diet is gonna make up for that you know and that's again why 98% of all diets fail because people are just eating a different food plan but doing nothing about how they got overweight in the first place and that's where the living you know changing our living habits is so so important
1: Welcome to the Secrets of Success Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, today's show is really around health and wellness, and who doesn't need that, and who isn't stressed right now in the world somewhere, somehow, for some reason. Now, before we jump into the show with Tricia Nelson, just a couple of things that are going on at CRG. We have now launched several online courses on demand for you individually and or as a group or as a company, or as an organization, there's all kinds of uh, group discounts if you have larger numbers. And so now we have uh, four online courses at the time of the recording of this, plus a fifth one that's coming on board, plus two or three others that we're going to be launching. So whenever you're listening to this, we already have a wellness course called Dying to Live that has been launched that's based on our stress indicator and health planner. So my encouragement there is, and it includes the assessment, that we take you step by step through the assessment. Now I admit it's our longest assessment that we have, but it's also the most thorough, and it's going to give you the greatest insight about your wellness levels in five different categories. So my encourage that you would uh, take a look at that. It's called Dying to Live. Just go to crgleader.com, go to the online courses under the CRG Academy, and then share that with yourself or others, and then we just. I take you through uh, personally, uh, through video, the course, the assessment, the tools so that you can increase your wellness and decrease your stress. Now as always, we thank you for being a Secrets of Success listener. If you like what we're doing, please pass it on, share it. Uh, One of the things that the platforms do, they really appreciate what people do, reviews, and add comments, and if you can just take a moment to do it, that's very, very much appreciated. The other one is, any comments to us as the host around what we're doing, what worked for you, what are some ideas, maybe you have a a guest that would be transformational for the show as well. So thank you as always, and here's our show around health and wellness, and around hunger, and her story is amazing, and here's Tricia Nelson. Welcome to the Secrets of Success Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keys. Well, all of you know that I have interest, or many of you know, that I have interest in health and wellness, and that I have my own personal story of that journey. And today is, we are gifted, we are honored to have somebody who is an expert in this space who has her own story. So welcome to the show, Tricia Nelson.
0: Thank you for having me so happy
1: to be here. Well, Trisha, we, we know that you've had your own personal journey around uh, weight and now you're really helping people with just the whole wellness, but around eating and eating habits. And we'll get into your uh, book, you know, Heal Your Hunger here in a bit. But before we begin, uh, who's Trisha? So help the audience <laughs> understand sort of your background and where you come from.
0: Great. Yeah, I um I well, literally I grew up in Massachusetts in a historic town of Concord and I uh was a fat kid basically uh and it was awful. In fact, um I I I was on a journey uh, uh, with my weight from very early age, but a lot of it was actually—I say I was a fat kid. When I look back at pictures, I wasn't always overweight, actually, but I felt like I was, and that's a lot of my, you know, clients and people I talk to who struggle with food and weight say the same thing—that they thought they were fat, but they weren't necessarily, and they—it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. So it, that's something I I describe as fat head when we think we're fat and we might not be. Um, that I had fat heads. So it you know, I wasn't fat. And then I started to gain weight. And by age 21, I definitely had filled out and I was 50 pounds overweight. And it was a real problem for me, Ken, because I was very obsessed with my weight and very unhappy about my weight. And I had this roll on my tummy that I used to scrunch up in my hands and uh, imagine cutting it off like you would cut like fat off the side of a steak mm. or or I imagined getting some disease where i would automatically lose weight or or I thought, maybe I'll join the army and I'll have to I'll be forced to exercise uh, at boot camp <laughs> because I hated to exercise. Mm. so kind of some pretty crazy thoughts around how to lose weight because I wasn't able to do it. Every diet I would try would work for a time, but I'd always end up going back to eating too much and eating the things I wasn't supposed to eat, and um, and and I was back at square one or worse, or I'd gain more weight. Um, and I had about five different sizes of pants in my closet because I never knew what size I would be. I was just a, a yo-yoer, and I'd go up and, up and down the scale. So, you know, I always held on to those skinny jeans because I was so – eager to fit into them, but usually they just collected dust because I was higher on the scale. But I say all that to really underscore the fact that it was a struggle for me and I was never happy with my weight. I was Mm. always struggling. And so you know, by age 21, when I was 50 pounds overweight, I started to realize that because I would tried so many things already like diets and pills and potions and lotions and self-help books and 12-step programs and even therapy, I had gone to an eating disorders therapist for a year. um, None of those things really succeeded or helped me succeed in losing the weight and keeping it off. And so what happened was that i met somebody who was able to help me dig deeper into the underlying causes of why i was compelled to eat why i had these cravings that seemed insatiable and when i got that help it turned it turned everything around for me and i was able to lose the weight and keep it off and i've been in a thankfully, in a th- thin body for several decades now. So as I Now, work, I'm just
1: going to interrupt you yeah. for a second, and I'm going to scroll back because one of the things we do in the show is before we get into these great insights and appreciate your stories, go to the even the backstory. story. Sure. Uh, when you think about your family of origin, was there anything there that contributed to sort of this mindset or condition? Because there's lots of research that says, if I am in a family that really doesn't eat well, and I have overweight parents or siblings, then the possibility of me being there is greater. So what's the story there for your family of origin that even contributed to this mindset for you?
0: Well, there's no question on a physical level, uh, I believe I have a propensity to gain weight very easily, and that was true for my parents. They were both overweight growing up, not not grossly overweight, but definitely they struggled with, with weight. Um, both of them were chubby by the th- when by this time they got married, their wedding photos shows them as I'd say each of them, maybe, you know, 30 or pounds or so overweight. And, um, so there's that, you know, there's definitely a physical component that's it is hereditary, you know, to, to have a body that doesn't metabolize quickly, um, you know, that can lead to weight gain. So there was that, I wouldn't say terrible eating habits, but definitely on an emotional and mental level, a lot of pain. Okay. So my family was dysfunctional (laughs) and, um, and it was not, I mean, not terribly that we didn't have plates flying across the kitchen, um, or any kind of, you know, outward signs of dysfunction, but sometimes the more stealth (laughs) dysfunction can be, even more aggravating or, mm. or mind, mind bending. Cause you're, it's like, everything looks okay. Like what's wrong? Why don't I feel okay? So that was more the way it was with my family. We were English. And so every, we were very polite, <laughs> but, um, but underneath was sarcasm, anger, passive aggressive, you know, so we were all in pain and, you know, my parents, Did the best they could for sure, but they had, you know, my dad had a father who died at 13 when he was, my dad was 13 and he was, became the man of the family very early on, became very serious and hardworking and definitely not in touch with his emotions and was sort of a sign of the times as well, you know, in the Mm. six sixties. Um, but, but, uh, you know, they just didn't, they, they weren't brought up to really process anything in a healthy way. So there was a lot of stuffing going on, you know, gin and tonics or rum and tonics every night. Um, uh, and, and, And food certainly being a crutch and then my sisters as well had their own issues with food so we were three girls and we all became emotional eaters and I will say uh, to your question uh, we all did have sexual abuse Um, uh, them my sisters from a uh, a family friend and me from a relative so um, outside my immediate immediate family so Um, there was definitely dysfunction from, you know, Mm. born from that. And I I think when you're a young kid and you experience sexual abuse, you have very few coping tools at your fingertips and food is one of them. Fantasy, food, um, masturbation, you know, these are some things that as kids, small kids, we don't, you know, we're grasping for something to kill the pain. And that was certainly, uh, the case for me, so yes, definite dysfunction, definite pain, bearing being buried, and and we were all kind mm. of you know stumbling along, doing the best we could. But um, food was definitely a coping tool in our family.
1: Well, obviously, you've converted that uh, pain into insights for others. So after high school, did you end up going to college, or what? What was sort of the direction right after that, before you were 21?
0: I did. I went to um I I went to Amherst College in uh, the Northeast and it was a small liberal arts college and I went there and after 2 years I kind of broke down. I mean, I didn't have a breakdown, but I felt like I was spinning my wheels, and all that I had been through, you know, was catching up with me, so I didn't feel very productive at college. I was not as driven as some of the other people at school. You know, there are people, 18-year-olds, old 18 year as pre-med and pre-law, and I'm like, you know, I, I'm not even, I, I can't even fathom having a direction right now in my life, so I took time off from school, and it was really to uh, quote, find myself. Like I needed, I needed a time out from that, that, you know, that typical college track. Um, I mm-hmm. moved across country. I was in therapy. And as I said, I, I was in therapy, 12 step programs, doing self, you know, reading self-help books. So I was on a quest to, to figure out why I was so unhappy. And I'm glad I took that time to do that because even though some of the methods I was using modalities, I was using weren't, helping me directly, my quest to find myself was a worthy one and and paid off because I eventually found a path that that led to my healing.
1: Mm, awesome. And then I and yeah. then
0: I went back to school and finished.
1: <laughs> and then what did you end up getting a degree in?
0: I got a degree in fine arts. It was a liberal arts degree in fine arts. So I was an art history major and um I am very grateful for that because I love art and I also love to do, I'm a painter as well.
1: Cool, cool. Now, where did you get the courage to go across the country in the middle of this and why, uh, you know, I noticed sort of there, why the West Coast, which is where we both live now, uh-huh. Uh huh. but how did, how did that unfold?
0: Well, um, it was one night I was sitting in the computer room. I'm dating myself. <laughs> you know we didn't have personal computers at the time, so I was in the in the computer room like very late at night and um and I knew I was taking time off and i was I wanted to go somewhere, and my instinct was really to go very far away from my family okay so my instinct was let me get the hell out of here <laughs> so I was in Massachusetts at the time so I went as far be- over as I could on the west coast I was going to go to Portland Oregon and then a friend of mine was from Seattle and she told me how beautiful it was and there was it was bigger and there was a lot of water so I said okay that's it and literally I remember the moment I made that decision I was writing a paper and I thought Seattle sounds good and that's where I ended up.
1: Cool. Cool. So now you're in Seattle. What were you end up doing there for that year you took off?
0: I worked at the Seattle Art Museum. And this is, if anybody knows Seattle, it used to just be a smaller museum uh, up on Capitol Hill. And so I, that's where I worked. And um, and i that was before they built the beautiful museum in downtown Seattle. But that was, you know, I was an art major and it, and it was just a perfect place for me to be.
1: Just a sidebar for everybody listening. If you go to Seattle, you have to go to the new museum, which yeah. is an architectural wonder in itself. And in fact, I think there was a Discovery Channel documentary on the building of that. So you'd have to go back and do it. So sidebar, sidebar <laughs> is a little squirrel there. Okay, so you're in Seattle. You're you are really coming to grips with this, and you meet someone that helps you to process all of this stuff. So take us through that.
0: Um, you know, I had been, as I mentioned, in a 12-step program for eating issues. I was in a, at seeing an eating disorders therapist twice a week. I was reading self-help books. Um, but well, what happened for me is I lost a lot of weight. I mean, I lost probably 40 pounds and... Uh, what happens for anybody who's struggled with food and weight, when you lose weight, you're so convinced that, you know, when I get a sin, my life will be better. Like that's, that's the myth, right? That's Mm. what we, that's what we believe is when I get, you know, and it could be anything, you know, whatever the destination is, when I get the Ferrari, you know, when I get the degree, when I get the big job whatever, uh, number on your bank account, but mine was weight. You know, if I lost this weight, you know, cause I'd struggled for so long, I, you know, I thought I'd, I'd, I'd be happy. And what happened for me is as I got down to my goal weight, of course it was wonderful to lose weight and people comment and I could buy new clothes. But then when I was circling my goal, the luster of weight loss began to wear off and, all the things that I had stuffed, all the emotions that I had stuffed with food for so long, you know those things got buried alive they didn't they didn't go anywhere. they were in me and just waiting to come out and I stuffed them with food and and other other distractions, and so they started to bubble up, and I became depressed and i this is before depression was kind of a a understood thing and um, I was right on the cusp of Prozac coming out in the late 80s, basically. And thankfully, I didn't go on medication because what happened uh, was that when these feelings surfaced and I became very unhappy and the weight loss you know, didn't fix me or make me as happy as I imagined it would, I started to realize that there was a deeper issue at hand and that I was going to need to address that or go back up the scale yet again. And be- as I mentioned, I was a yo-yoer, so it was only a matter of time. And, and statistically speaking, I was part of the statistic of 98% of diets failing. So I, well, sure enough, on this weight loss journey, it was more or less a diet for me. And I was It was ecstatic to lose weight and then... Extremely disappointed when I realized it didn't fix me and those feelings were coming up So what happened was that I had to go deeper and it was really a turning uh, a, a, a Moment it was a turning point for me to think wow I have to deal With what's inside of me and or, or else I will continue the yo-yo dieting for the rest of my life
1: mm. mm-hmm. So then what was this next step that helped and started to begin the transformation
0: uh, what happened was, is I, I met somebody, I had known somebody, and then I was reintroduced to a man who was a spiritual healer and had lost a lot of weight himself. And he was somebody I knew was uh, mentoring some some other people that I knew who also were kind of in that stuck place. There were sort of feeling hopeless as I was because when you're in a program that's supposed to be the last house on the block for eating and you're failing at it, you're like, Oh, I'm in big trouble, you know? And so here I am needing something else and not knowing it it existed. And by the grace of God, I was introduced to this, reintroduced this man. And he showed me how to take that deeper journey into my emotions and into the things that I had stuffed for so long. So it wasn't like therapy because in therapy I was more in my head, and I think that's why I didn't make the progress I, I needed. And so with this man and his real gift that he had for getting into the it, like just getting into my heart and sort of lasering into the things that were trapped in there, um, I really began this process of unburning myself with all the pain I had from my childhood that I had no tools to deal with. So that was really what happened is he showed me a way of living and a process by which I could shed, shed these emotions that were driving me to
1: eat. Cool. Cool. Well, Trish, you have your book. And so thank you for that, you know, heal yeah. your hunger. And it talks about seven simple steps. So, uh, you know, we, we want to make sure that the listeners have some information. here. now not everybody that's listening to this needs to lose weight, Mm -hmm. But all of us have stuff. And uh, just a sidebar, Tricia, my story is I was misdiagnosed with manic depression in the 80s, then put me on lithium and found out I was actually hypoglycemic. Oh, wow. And that was my own story. That's why I have such a passion. And not that I'm against traditional medicine, but I am, uh, as a person who has a diploma in nutrition and genetics, is that functional medicine and going to the baseline for all of us is the starting point. So with that Mm. and your book, heal your hunger, what are the seven steps that you take people through so that on the other side that we really can feel more whole regardless of the context?
0: Yeah. And, and what happened and the reason why, um, this worked for me is, um, I mean, my own process of healing worked is, I mean, I laid it out in the book. I basically codified one part that, that I didn't talk about is after getting help from this person, I joined him in helping others. So I had an amazing experience for 20 years of helping other people with addictions, not just food, many Mm -hmm. different addictions. Uh, But when I started heal your hunger about four years ago, I codified the things that I do and that I had spent so many years teaching others to do to heal and so I codified it and that's what I that's what ended up in the book and I have a program that brings people in the deep, deeper experience of it but the stuff are really about they're not about food because my experience is anybody who struggled for any length of time with food and weight knows a lot about nutrition they've read the books they've been studying it they've been trying to get to the bottom of it for so long so they're not ignorant of the fact that you know green leafy vegetables are better than ice cream for your body, <laughs> you know so really? is that true <laughs> it's, 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 it's widely it's widely presumed um, okay. so, <laughs> so they're not like they're not stupid, and unfortunately, those who do struggle with food and weight, you know oftentimes doctors will make it sort of a presumption that we are stupid because. they'll say things like, well, eat less and exercise more or eat sugar in moderation or things that, you know, aren't rocket science, but they don't work for somebody who has an emotional eating issue. And so uh, it's really important that, you know, that's why those things are the conventional wisdom is not so wise for a certain segment of people. And those those are people who really get out of control with their eating. And, and, And I have clients who aren't overweight at all, but they have an obsession with food and weight. You know, they might be jogging five miles a day to control their eating binges when they're very spelt, but they're absolutely owned by food and by, you know, the way it, Mm -hmm. it, you know, it, they're thinking about it all day long. So weight is not necessarily an indicator of somebody being an emotional eater. Well, we had a,
1: a relative and interesting enough, she's a nurse now. But she was hospitalized many times for um, her, uh, she was basically 75 pounds soaking wet and she was mm. still looking in the mirror saying that she was fat.
0: Anorexic, yep. Yeah,
1: exactly. And yep. so th- th- these emotional things now, she's healed now, but it was many years through the process. So Very
0: hard, yeah, for sure.
1: So what are the, some of these steps then that uh, take the listeners through?
0: So one of the steps, is being connected and being in community with other emotional eaters because the problem with being an emotional eater is you feel so much shame about it that you try to figure it out on your own without bringing in any anybody in on it (laughs) so because you think you should quote should be able to handle it on your own you know how crazy is it that you have to seek out some kind of help outside yourself. It should be something so simple, like just mm-hmm. eat less, exercise more, like the doctor said, you know, but it's, it's not that simple if you have this problem. So getting connected with other emotional eaters is vital.
1: So get into a support group, then what's, what's next?
0: Well, I wouldn't say just any support group because most people don't understand how to overcome emotional eating. And a lot of the advice out there is based on diet and it's based on exercise whereas people really need to be connected with people who understand emotional eating so i definitely say that but 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 regardless coming out of the closet with the problem being in community with other people is very healing cuz mm-hmm. no cuz people think they're the only ones in terms of food and how to eat the only thing i recommend to people because uh, i think it's really important that we dig into the emotions so that we can follow a healthy plan because there's lots of good plans out there for healthy eating, but following through with it is is the gap. You know, people don't follow through with what they know. Um so what I recommend to people around the food issue is do something what i've 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 coined it uh, or I've named it Three Meal Magic. And this is three eating three meals with nothing in between. And I use this as the framework, um, a really simple framework for people, not as a diet even, but as a way of starting to identify what one's emotions even are. Because, you know, if somebody's snacking throughout the day, they're not even aware of their emotions because they're numbed out. And so uh, it's really important that we have some kind of boundaries around food so that we can start identifying what's even going on inside of us. So this simple plan of three meals with nothing in between will help a person do that. Because when you have a little bit of hunger between your meals and you wait until it's mealtime to eat, you'll start getting acquainted with what's, like, what's underneath that hunger. It's, and people are very afraid of hunger for that reason. They don't really want to know what's there. They're running from themselves and food is their way of doing that among other things. So that's a very simple way of eating that's just going to help you tap in and tune in to what's inside of you on an emotional level. So another thing I recommend um, in order to be able to follow through with a 3 meal magic plan is to start a routine in the morning that can help you get still and quiet and centered. And this is something that's very difficult because people who are overeaters are overdoers and (laughs) over-committers so they like to keep busy and why again same reason we don't really want to stop and feel we don't want to know what what's going on inside of us we're kind of always on the go because it keeps us one step ahead of our emotions but in order to to heal we're gonna have to identify what those emotions are so um, starting a routine like meditation prayer journaling reading spiritual literature doing some of these things first thing in the morning before you get up and go is going to be so important for being able to feel supported from the inside out, you know, Mm. and people talk about weight loss and I call it weight loss from the inside out because if you start making peace with your emotions, if you start having this really precious time in the morning where you're connecting with your divine spirit, um, you know, it's going to bring you calm it's going to bring you emotional balance. And I often call it putting deposits into your spiritual bank account because when you start the day this way, instead of ricocheting off of all the stressors or emails or you know, needs of people around you, you have this foundational like source, this, this source you can draw on, spiritual bank account, if you will. And later in the day, when the stress of the day has piled up, you can take withdrawals from that account because you've made deposits. So you have something to withdraw on. If you don't, you're going to be, you know, reaching for sugar or caffeine to keep you going. And obviously we know where that leads. So it's just really important that we start really tending to our spirits and putting those, you know, those resources in so that we can be fueled, be sustained in a way that's not unhealthy. And mm. so that is so important. And self-care is so overlooked. You know, we're just, our culture is so geared towards do, 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 achieve, you know, accomplish. And, and yet we're using food and alcohol and cigarettes and pot and whatever else to do it. Which are all unhealthy and and it's gonna cause our bodies to break down ultimately. Whereas if we're doing it in a more organic you know way, and it's gonna it's gonna be a healthy way of bolstering ourselves. It doesn't have adverse side effects. It's so important. Self-care is such an important part of healing from emotional eating.
1: Well, one of the things uh, Trisha, you're talking about is the stats are that seventy or eighty percent of people check their emails before they get out of bed. So mm-hmm. you start, and then the other one is, is Dr. Armen is, is somebody I'm connected to as far as his work. And so we're trying to get a dopamine rush first thing in the morning going on social media. So what you're really saying is the opposite is, uh, don't be go binging yourself up and ramping it up. Is that, that centered in calmness? So that's yeah. great. That's great advice. So then from there, where do we, where do you take us?
0: Well, I have a process of helping people, you know, once you have a foundation of self-care, you're you're eating in a more, you know, balanced schedule, uh, where you can access your emotions. I take people on a journey of really identifying what those emotions are. And I have something, um, that I do talk about in the book called the anatomy of the emotional eater, because it's not about the food. It's, you know, and that's where people are going wrong. they are always just trying to apply a diet or an exercise program, but if we don't change the way we're living, we're never going to experience success in our, in our health In my experience. And I often say it's not an eating problem, but rather a living problem. So what I've done is I've identified the top 24 traits that emotional eaters tend to display or live by that are causing their cravings because we think that cravings just happen like, Oh, I'm struck with a chocolate craving, you know, and chocolate is wonderful. I admit, but, um, but it's not just about the chocolate. It really comes from a deeper place often and usually stress. Um, but, It's not just stress either. We are showing up in the world in a way that's creating that stress that we are stress eating over. So wouldn't it be nice instead of just being a victim of, you know, of of a barrage of cravings, wouldn't it be nice to realize what's causing those cravings? And my experience is about 90% of cravings are emotional. Of course, sugar is addictive. If you eat sugar, you will crave sugar. Okay. It's highly, if you're, if you're addicted to sugar, if you have that, that your body reacts to it that way, which mine certainly does. Um, and so 10% of cravings can be physical. If you have something in your body that you're addicted to, but beyond that, it's emotional. And so I'm going to talk to you, Ken, about the top three traits that Mm -hmm. emotional eaters tend to have and that always give them trouble in terms of, you know, their living problem. And the top, top trait is people-pleasing. In my experience, I've really met an emotional eater who isn't a people pleaser. And this comes from back where we started talking on the show, uh, back to our childhood. And, you know, when we do have trauma, when we do have an alcoholic parent or some kind of chaos in our home, we need coping skills. But as kids, we don't have a whole lot that we can depend on. So, of course, that's why the, the, the things I mentioned are, you know, are, are at our fingertips. But we also have ways of being that are coping skills as well, and people pleasing is one of them. So if you have a rager as a parent, or you know someone with mental illness or, or uh, addiction, you're you're constantly sort of taking the temperature of the people around you because we don't want mom to blow up, you know, we don't want dad to hit us, and so we're we're. We become people pleasers as a, just literally a way to stay alive and to stay out of harm's way. And while it saves our life as a kid, you know, to be able to take other people's temperature and mood and and dance for them, to, you know, do everything we can to make them happy – that does not work as an adult, and when we do that as an adult, it backfires because when we're always saying yes to the projects that are presented to us, or we're always doing our kids' homework, or we're constantly, you know, the ones hosting the parties or the uh, events, uh, you know, when that happens, we run ourselves ragged, and so we're not only tired, adrenally fatigued, you know, and just kind of burnt out but we're also kind of pissed off because guess what? Nobody's ever as pleased as we plan on them being. <laughs> so, so it's a perfect prescription for what I call the, I deserve it. binge. like, we're tired and we're pissed off and we go home and we say, screw them. Like they didn't appreciate me. I'm going to reward myself. And we have that binge and mm-hmm. uh, you know, i get our cookies and ice cream or whatever. And, and so that's where people pleasing leads. So even though people pleasing seems to have nothing to do with food, it has everything to do with the stress that we create that we end up, um, you know, trying to overcome or get through using food. And so that's why, I mean, to me, that's the good news. The good news is if we change how we're living, it will have a major impact on how we're eating. And if we don't change how we're living, no diet is gonna make up for that. You know, and that's again, why 98% of all diets fail, because people are just eating a different food plan, but doing nothing about how they got overweight in the first place. And that's where the living, you know, changing our living habits is so, so important. Um, I told you, I'd tell you a few other traits. Another one uh, it, of uh, emotional eaters is overthinking or having a racing mind. Emotional mm-hmm. eaters are constantly in their heads, constantly thinking, you know, what did she mean by that? Or what, you know, what did, you know, why did he do that? Or, and we're constantly in our minds, We also don't like to speak up because we're afraid and we're people pleasers. So we, we, we swallow what we want to say, which has to change. Um, You know, so when we are reading other people's minds or thinking we understand what people are thinking and and we're stressing out about it, um, it creates a lot of anxiety and a lot of just nervousness um, that again, we are, uh, we're quelling with food and especially carbs and sugar. I mean, we're, Typically not stuffing with celery sticks and lettuce, because it doesn't kill the it doesn't kill those feelings. it doesn't it doesn't give us that serotonin effect that we need in order to calm down. Mm-hmm. But this racing mind, that's why I recommend meditation first thing in the morning because emotional leaders do have racing minds, and it gets the best of us all the time. So we have to have a way to combat that that's healthy. And having that morning routine of getting centered and calm is going to, and, and in the afternoon too, I, I am a twice a day meditator. And that afternoon meditation is gold to me because I've accumulated stress throughout the day, you know, and if I keep reeling from that stress, uh, I'm going to eat way more for dinner than I need. Whereas if I take a break before I go into the kitchen at the end of the, of, of the work day, and I just take 20 minutes to settle down, and meditate but even if somebody if they're so afraid of meditation they can start with just putting on you know lighting a candle dark you know dimming the lights and just being quiet just that alone is gonna just bring somebody's stress level down um and so we just we need these things it's if you try to just eat differently but you don't give yourself new coping tools you'll resort to the food it's so quick and so easy Mm -hmm. and so accessible so we have to do the self-care in order to really start living differently. Um, and there's, as I said, there's 24 traits. So there's, there's many, many traits. Right. Um, so I did promise you three. So I'm just trying to think about what's a good one to talk about. Um, I, I would say um, resentment is one that gets the best of us a lot of the time. Um, You know, when we don't, when we are afraid of speaking up for ourselves, we are afraid of expressing our opinion because we don't want people to be displeased with us. We build up resentments and resentments, you know, and and it's hard for an emotional eater to imagine being resentful because we're so nice. (laughs) We're always so nice. Um, But the thing is, we're, we're wearing a lot of extra pounds of nice on us on our bodies and we've got to stop, you know, stuffing what we want to say, not that we need to blast people. We just, you know, say what we mean, mean what we say and don't say it mean. Um, but it's really important that we, we offload those resentments, those hurts that we buried for so long. And again, I have a process of doing that, which is super healing and super quick. You don't need 20 years of therapy to, to offload that stuff. Um, But it is important to do so because otherwise we're going to have to keep that stuff buried forever by perpetual eating.
1: Mm, Cool, cool. Well, I can relate to the story because my mom is 86 during this recording and she'll never listen to it. But she's an adult child of an alcoholic. And so that is still there. So I, I get that you have to process that, that people pleasing side. And then, of course, the bitterness and resentment that can come up And all the research shows is that if I am bitter, then my life uh, longevity actually decreases as well. So, Tricia, if you can believe it, we only have a few minutes left. So how can people get a hold of you? What are your contact information so that people, if they want to reach out and find out more about your book or some of the things that you're doing, how might they do that?
0: Sure, um my website is healyourhunger.com, H E A L healyourhunger.com and they can find my book on my website as well. There's a a, a link um, to click to that, uh, to purchase and the quiz uh, my free quiz to find out if you're an emotional eater or a food addict or somewhere in between can be taken from the website as well. I'm also on Instagram at Trisha Nelson underscore at the end of the N is an underscore. So Trisha Nelson underscore, I have a very active Instagram account. Um, I'd love to connect with you there. And I also have a group on Facebook, called The Secret Sauce to End Emotional Eating, which is free. So people can go to The Secret Sauce group and join us there. And I do our recordings there and and guest, you know, uh, interviews and um, announcements and all that kind of thing.
1: Oh, great, great. Well, and we'll make sure that all of this is in the show notes as we go forward. Now, Tricia, well, there's, there's lots of different components. As you mentioned, you have 24 in your book and you mentioned three. If you were to leave the guests with an encouragement or a piece of wisdom about really just generally improving my wellness and health period. What would you leave us with today?
0: I would say slow down. We're too busy. Everybody's too busy and our health is taking a hit on account of it, you know, and if we learned nothing else from COVID, it's that we can slow down and still be okay. Okay. You know, and obviously it's hard being cooped up with the quarantine, but I think it's been a good lesson to people that, you know, it's, it's important to take time with family. It's important to take time for ourselves, um, quiet time with, you know, our God and meditation and prayer. So any of these things is going to help us, uh, recalibrate in our bodies. And, um, and the other thing I would say is, is don't do it alone you know, nobody can do this alone. You don't, you don't think twice about hiring a trainer if you want to get fit or run a marathon, but people somehow have resistance around hiring, hiring someone and help them with their eating habits. And yet there's nothing more important they could do than to experience, you know, uh, a, a new
1: experience or a new relationship with food. Mm, mm. Well, Tricia Nelson, thank you very much for hanging out with us today.
0: Oh, it's been such a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Well stay with us. Now, secrets of success listeners, you know, we have a diverse list of guests who give us different insights. And really what I picked up from Trisha is that it's really not about the eating, it's really about our emotional condition. And if we can improve that emotional condition, that is going to affect affect every part of our life. Not just food, but just how I respond and my patience and irritability and all these different things that come from just being better from an emotional condition point of view. So thank you for sharing your most valuable commodity. That is your time with us today. If you like what we're doing, please share it, pass it on, let somebody else know about it or leave a positive comment in whatever platform you're listening to and on. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes.